If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Acts chapter 5 this morning for our scripture reading. Most of you will be aware that we have been steadily working our way through these early chapters of Acts leading up to Easter and we will break of course naturally for Easter season and then return to Acts later next month. Today we're reading from verses 27 through 42. It's a fairly lengthy reading, so please bear with me. The words are on the screen. And to put it in context, chapter 5 continues some of the major themes that we saw in chapter 4 last Sunday. The apostles had been living out their faith day by day in the temple courts, talking about the difference that Christ makes in their lives, and people were coming in significant numbers to hear them, and many were being healed. So much so that by the time you get to chapter 5, verse 17, we find that the Jewish authorities and Sadducees of that day were jealous of all that was taking place And so they have them arrested and placed in the public jail overnight. An angel of God appears in a supernatural fashion, and you don't always see that in Scripture, released them from prison, and they went back to the temple courts, once again living out their faith. And so when we come to verse 27, the Sanhedrin, the leading Jewish council, have gathered together, and their first questions are, Please call in the apostles so we can question them and we break into the chapter with that context. So verse 27 begins. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. He gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you have killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who will be him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if in their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. 
They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us these readings from his holy word. In the course of any given week, I will receive multiple emails, of course, from the congregation. And occasionally, from time to time, will, one or two of them will be extremely funny. And, of course, I try to share them with you the following Sunday. And this email came in last Tuesday. Hello, Richard and Ruth. I hope you are both well and enjoying this early spring. The weather here in Wilmington is lovely today, with flowers blooming and trees budding. Richard, I must tell you what happened Last night, I could not sleep, which is most unusual for me. About midnight, I turned to one of your Bible lessons and I listened to it. And guess what? I went straight to sleep. (laughs) Now, that is not an entirely new experience for me, because on Sunday mornings, I see that happening pretty regularly. But I have to say that over these last couple of weeks as we have explored further and further into the book of Acts, we've discovered that the book of Acts is not a book that will put you to sleep. But it contains an exciting, enthralling, compelling narrative as God is at work in all sorts of ways across all levels of society. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you remember we looked at what is called Pentecost Sunday with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and the impact and transformation he brought with him. And I said on that first Sunday together that if I was to describe our studies together, it would read like this. Throughout the book of Acts, God is on the move in multiple directions across all levels of society transforming, renewing, and equipping his children to powerfully live out their faith. And we certainly have seen that in the last few weeks. And you're about to see it this morning in a dynamic, exciting manner as God once again is at work. I'm absolutely convinced that as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 5, some of the major themes continue. And if you were with us last week, we noted that Peter and James were called up before the religious leaders of the day, and they were told to stop sharing the gospel, to stop living out their faith. And of course they did the very opposite. And we see that again here in chapter 5. A couple of minutes ago, I suggested that the early part of chapter 5, folks were coming in significant numbers to hear Peter and John and the others. Lives were being transformed. Those who were ill were being healed. And so you have that spectacular work of God taking place in these exciting chapters. The end of chapter 4, we finished last Sunday by focusing on verse 13. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
And that, of course, in many ways sums up our faith. That when we respond to the love and grace of God encountered in the gospel, we suddenly begin to discover that our lives are changing. That God is drawing us into an intimate, profound relationship with him. And of course, those early disciples and apostles could see it for themselves. And each generation since then has likewise had such an experience as God has been to has got to work. And so here last week, James and Peter were told, stop what you're doing, but they of course ignored it and went on living out their faith. Oh, excuse me, let me jump one more. Thank you. And so today as we come into chapter 5, we know that the apostles had been arrested, put in prison overnight. And my question is this, When the Sanhedrin got together, and when they met, this is what we read. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they believe, the apostles of course have been imprisoned. They have no idea they've been set free. They called together the Sanhedrin. And notice what Luke does. Can you see the dash? The full assembly of the elders in Israel and sent to the jail for the apostles. Now for those of you who teach Sunday school or take the study of your Bible very seriously, the hyphen there after the word Sanhedrin, New Testament scholars tell us this, that Luke was a Gentile and he's writing to folks who have a Gentile background. In other words, they wouldn't automatically know who the Sanhedrin are. And so Luke Luke gives a note of explanation. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, made up of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then Luke explains the full assembly of the elders in Israel and sent to jail for the apostles. And so you have that little side note going on there. In other words, Luke is telling us this. This is very serious. This is the supreme court of the ruling Jewish authority. We're about to hear the case for the apostles. And of course, as we know, they have been released and are back out in the temple preaching and teaching once again. But let me ask you to use your imagination. Come back with me. And imagine what it would have been like to have been arrested for what we are doing this morning. Simply gathering for worship, participating in a baptism, praying for others. What do you imagine was going through the mind of those early disciples? Do you imagine that they would simply sit down in a corner of the public jail and say, yep, we'll be fine, an angel will come tonight and set us free and there'll be no problem? Or do you think in their minds it was going back several weeks to when Jesus was arrested and then he was tried and tortured and crucified? Do you think that would be running through their mind? Would they be wondering, do their family know? Or perhaps they were going to the deeper question. If Christ promised to love us and never forsake us and walk away from us, 
How come we've ended up in prison? Where is God in the midst of this? What on earth is going on? I thought living out my faith, I would naturally grow and mature in my faith. I get to know him better. And now I find myself in a prison cell. What is going on here? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And they are now facing opposition. Significant opposition. Remember, the Supreme Court opposition. Now let me come back into the 21st century and try to make this point. When you begin to take the Word of God seriously and you start to read it and study it for yourself, when you take the principles we find contained in Scripture and seek to apply them to your life, and you seek to live by Christian moral standards and values, and you seek to put those moral and Christian values into practice, you will change. And not everyone will be pleased with that change. Very few folks are going to come alongside you and pat you on the back and say, I see you are changing. Well done. But the opposite may be the case. They may look at you askance and say, something's happened here. What is going on? Because those early disciples discovered what you and I and every generation since has discovered. That when Christ breaks into your life through the gospel and he transforms your heart and mind and soul, he also gives you his Holy Spirit to come and dwell within. And as a result, you have that mighty, energizing, sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit renewing and refreshing you. And suddenly you start to take your faith seriously. You're growing, you're maturing, you seek to live out that faith and your moral standards change. Your language is cleaned up. Programs you watched on TV you will no longer put up with because you don't want it in your head and in your heart. And you change. And opposition will come. Sometimes that opposition will be internal Sometimes it will be mental opposition where you find yourself in the midst of busy, demanding days when you're distracted by the clutter and schedule that lies before you. You discover that apathy, indifference, you really can't be bothered, begins to dominate your thought process. Your faith drifts off to the side. At other times... It will be external opposition. When things don't go well, circumstances you had hoped would turn out better have not turned out better. And you're praying and trusting. But nonetheless, it doesn't seem as if God is answering that prayer. And it almost feels as if you have been isolated and locked up in prison and things are not going well. And you begin to say, Father, what is going on? Why would you do this? Hold that thought, and we'll come back to it in a moment or two. 
Because I suspect some of those thoughts were running through the mind of these early disciples. I have to confess that I know nothing about surfing. But I know one or two folks who have surfed. And when I ask them about surfing, they say there is nothing quite like it. And then I'll say to them, well, tell me a little about what surfing is like. And they'll say, well, to get a sense of what surfing is like, especially in those early days, if you have an upstairs bedroom, go into the cupboard, get out your ironing board, go to the, up to the top of the stairs in your home, stand on the ironing board, launch yourself down the stairs, try to keep your balance, and have family members throw buckets of water over you as you go down the stairs. And then when you crash at the bottom, get them to throw more water on you because that's when you will be disorientated and are not quite sure whether you're still standing up or whether you're on the floor. That gives you a sense of what surfing is like. And of course, as they're telling me that, they're smiling at the ridiculous nature of it. And I say, come on, what is it really like? And they say, that's what it's like in the early days. Because you don't know how to keep your balance. You don't know how to properly fall off of your board. When you hit the water and go under, you're disorientated. And sometimes the waves are so strong, you are turned over and over, and you're not sure which way is the sky and where the seabed is. That's what surfing is like in those early days. And then they often say this, but once you master the basics... You begin to look further and further out. Because that's where the white waves are. That's where the big waves can be found. And that's when you really learn to surf out there in the white waves. Those apostles were learning what it means to live out your faith in the midst of the white water, the big waves. Through this experience of chapter 4 and chapter 5, where opposition began to mount and began to mount seriously, they were growing and maturing in their faith. They were beginning to understand what did it mean to have a real, authentic, credible faith. They were beginning to understand what it meant to get down on their knees and trust in Him alone. Because remember, when they first met Jesus, they had no idea that faith in God could be a, a literal reality. They had no idea what intimacy with him was like. But over the last three years, as he'd listened to him teach and preach and impact their lives, their lives had been changed and there was this newfound faith. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they moved to a whole new level again. And in moving to that new level, they are out amongst the white waves, growing maturing in their faith, having everything else stripped away from them. And all that was left was utter dependence on him and him alone. 
as the disciples appear before the Sanhedrin, we discover that the Sanhedrin were absolutely furious with them that they were living out their faith. And in fact, the passage tells us, and we read it, they wanted to take their life. And Gamaliel stands up and says, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. And that's exactly what happened. They brought the disciples in. They had them flogged. And they were told under no circumstances, continue to do what you are doing, preach in the name of Jesus, gather for worship and perform these miracles. It has to stop. And they sent them away. Notice how the passage ends. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now please realize what has taken place here. They have been flogged do you know what that means? That means the skin on their back was peeling off significant wounds and lacerations. They could not sleep on their backs that night or for probably the next week. But in the course of facing opposition, and most of us will never face that kind of opposition. It will be social opposition we will face. Folks will hold us at arm's length, find us slightly weird when we seriously live out our faith. And the apostles were battered and bruised. And if, when we are seriously living out our faith, faith, be prepared to feel battered and bruised. You will face opposition. But please understand this. When you are out in the white water, facing the big waves, the only way you learn to ride the crest of a wave is by leaning into it. Not cautiously, not tentatively, not I'm uncertain. And of course you'll be thrown off. And of course you'll be tumbling in the water, uncertain which way is up and which way is down. Will be battered and bruised. But that's okay. That's what you do when you surf. But when you discover you can keep your balance, and you lean into it, and you ride on the crest of the wave, there's nothing quite like it. And please grasp this. When you are serious about growing in your faith, when you are battered and bruised, when you are facing opposition, and late at night before you sleep you find yourself on your knees, utterly dependent on Him, and saying, Father, I never imagined that living out my faith would take me to this place. I'm hurting 
People are treating me differently. But I know this. I can sense your presence and your tender touch. Father, mature me. Refine me. Shape me. Let me be your disciple. And when those moments when you find yourself under the water, upside down, twisting and turning, you know this. He's got you. You're not on your own. And you get right back up and you start again. Now you may be here this morning and saying, Richard, I'm with you. I understand everything you've said. I couldn't agree more. I think I get the principles here of persevering in your faith, growing and maturing is not easy. I will be battered and bruised as a result. Some days things will not work out as I had hoped. But Richard, I have to tell you this. I'm not an apostle. I don't have the faith of an apostle. I'm not sure I have that much faith. I really don't think I do. Now please let me close with this thought. It's never the amount of your faith that matters What matters is who is the object of your faith. It's the risen Christ. That's what matters. And in putting His Holy Spirit within your heart and soul, He has given you what? The same moral and supernatural power that brought Him back to life from the grave now lives in you. And when you face opposition, the best place to be is on your knees. And let me put a final thought right in there and ask you this. And this is what I want you to take away this morning and ask yourself every day till this time next Sunday. It's a question. It's a simple question. It's a straightforward question, but it is not an easy question. And the question is this. Please answer. Is Christ sufficient for your every need? Whether you are leaning into a problem on the crest of a wave whether you are under the water or feel as if you're going down the stairs on an ironing board, is He sufficient for our every need? The answer, of course, is yes. And the next time you're tempted to go to sleep in the middle of a sermon, please remember, He is always sufficient for every need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage this morning. And thank you that as we face opposition, sometimes internally, sometimes externally, that you in your sovereign providential purposes often use those moments for our growth and maturity. Father, help us this week, whatever we are facing, to rest in the risen Christ, for He is sufficient for our every need. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.